Our passage this morning is from Exodus 40. We will read most of it, the second half of it. We are continuing our series uh, in the life of Moses, predominantly from the book of Exodus. And this is the final sermon. So you are the ones that made the cut. You're the ones that said, I'm going to come and hear this final one. And it's going to be amazing. And then you can tell the others what they missed. Um, Exodus is a fascinating... When you think of the life of Moses... It really has a bit of a, um, a bittersweet end. Most of you know that he does not get to enter the promised land. That's something that's not allowed to him in the end. And we know that he wrote the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy give a lot more of the story. But Exodus ends on an upswing. And that's what we're going to focus on today, is that last week we looked at the tabernacle and how all of these items were, were given voluntarily by the people. And then the gifts, the skills that the Lord had given them were used to craft this amazing structure. This morning we're going to see this structure put together and erected and God's glory coming down. And, and I hope what we'll begin to question is we've been really building on this idea of God's glory for the past few weeks. What does that look like now in modern times? What does the glory of God look like in our lives? That's the hopefully a burning question we'll have as we move through this discussion. So, Looking at chapter 40 of Exodus, the first 15 verses are almost repeated in 16 through 33, where God gives all these instructions to Moses on now on how to actually put the tent together. And then in 16 it says, This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in it its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the, set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, 
because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from, the out the ta- from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, wow. Partly this seems so foreign, and yet partly it's so amazing how detailed you are. And more importantly, God, how much you long to dwell with your people. Father, I pray through your Spirit we would see the beauty of this passage and of the reality of what this means. That you are a God who longs to dwell, Emmanuel, to be with your people. Help us to long to dwell with you all the days of our life. In your name we pray. Amen. So yesterday, many of us were in Tulsa at a wedding. And it was a beautiful wedding. It's the first one I've been to in a while that I wasn't actually conducting the wedding. So that was kind of interesting. And all my children were there. It was Hunter, Quinn, and Laura Roscoe. Roscoe? Roscoe. Not Roscoe. And it was beautiful. And Shane, I think, did a masterful job and shared the gospel. And you're sitting there, and I don't know if you expect it at a wedding. I'm a guy, so I don't expect it. But I became a little bit emotional. This is a beautiful moment, right? I mean, two people right before our very eyes are going from being single to being married. And it's interesting because um, there's all this stuff. I mean, we all, there's like bride, the show Bridezilla. There's all these shows now about how hard weddings are to develop and to put together and all the details. And yet here at this moment, we know all that's happened. And we're sitting there watching this awesome ceremony. But there's more to it, right? There's, um, you're sitting there and maybe, for example, I'm sitting there with my wife, so we're remembering our our, marriage, our wedding, right? Uh, I have two boys that are in there wa- watching this, and I haven't really talked to them about it, but my guess is they're thinking, when does this end? And, and what's, what's the food going to be like? I have two little girls who are thinking, when am I going to get married? Uh, Bonnie, not really sure who the bride was for a while. Was that thinking the mom was the bride at first. She looks different, Mommy. And, and everybody else has their own experience. But the reality is, the best, one of the best parts of a wedding is when you hear the story about the couple. And Shane shared a little bit of their story. Those of us that know the two know their story. And you realize there's so much more going on than just this ceremony, right? And so why am I bringing that up? Maybe it's obvious. But we have this this story of a tabernacle. We have details, right? And all these things are there and in place. But at the end of the day, the question is, what's your story? Are you... Do you see this and go, that's my story. God's glory came to dwell, and I'm a part of that. Or are you looking as an outsider at this story? Are you just kind of observing this tabernacle and going, I don't see how I fit into that at all? Last week we talked about how through God's glory, coming into this situation, ordinary things became extraordinary, right? They became glorious. The brooch that a person would have worn has now been melted down and turned into maybe part of the ark, for example. And that's glorious. It's extraordinary. I'm reversing it this week. This week, it's all this extraordinary, amazing stuff that they've been crafting is finally being erected. Like in one moment, and they're watching this happen, this cloud comes down. God is present. 
And then if you read the last bit, it says, and this happened every day throughout their journeys. Forty years. I bet a little, they get a little bit tired of it. They become bored. The extraordinary becomes ordinary. And that's my concern for us. Are we, as believers, who have inherited this, and, we, and we'll talk more about what it really means for the New Testament believer, to have this tabernacle, are we bored with it? Is it become ordinary? Or is it still extraordinary in our lives? That's what we'll look at this morning. And we're going to just kind of walk through this tabernacle situation and unpack it and then talk about what does it look like today. So, these instructions that God has given Moses are, are amazing. And it's amazing because every single detail about not only the craftsmanship and what goes into it are there, but actually how it's going to be put together. Right? And, and even and it's, it's amazing. Like God, like Moses does it exactly as God said. To where every step is part of the, almost the worship process. So it's not like, okay, that's done, now let's just get this thing put together. Okay, that goes, where does that go? Yeah, I think that goes in the middle. No, it's everything according to instruction. And it's so formal that you heard me repeat it several times, as God commanded Moses. It was interesting because each of those verses started with he, Moses. But then when it, when it got to the end of the verse, as God commanded Moses. So there's this process that is exceedingly ordinary, right? Simply put this here, put that there, you know, put the poles here, move them in there, you know, put the bread here, and all of a sudden, this cloud descends, right? And so what you find is this glory comes through ordinary processes. And I just want to throw that principle out there, that the Christian life can, should be, and I'm going to kind of, should have ordinary processes, right? We call them the ordinary means of grace. I think sometimes we're trying to make things more powerful through our emotions, or maybe we try to add to worship, but quite frankly, God has given us the exact process he wants to be known by, right? This service, worship, corporate worship is one. The sacraments, right? We have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, we'll take later, is another, what we call ordinary means of grace. The word ordinary there is not negative, it just means it's, it's not something crazy. You can see what's going on. Reading our Bible, right? Ordinary, but it becomes extraordinary because the Holy Spirit illumines our scriptures to us. Prayer. These are the, th- the means God uses. And in the same way that you see this tabernacle being erected in our lives, are we following these ordinary means? Or are we sort of trying to do things differently? Hoping that they'll something how will lead to greater power. Because so, you have this ordinary process. And secondly, that was fascinating about this passage, is this cloud descends and it's the glory of God. Right now, what's interesting is, throughout their travels after they left, after they crossed through the um, the Red Sea, and the waters came crashing down, God God led them as a pillar by day of, of cloud and by fire by night, right? But here it's different. There's something slightly more. I, I don't honestly, I don't know how to conceive. It's just different. There's a tabernacle. God has come in to dwell the tabernacle. And what's really amazing is Moses himself, it says in verse 35, was not able to enter the tent of meeting. He couldn't go in. God has come now in in such a way that Moses, who was the one that always relayed the messages of, of God to the people, he now became a spectator in a sense. Right? He now became one of the people. And God is in the tabernacle, 
and you, there's these barriers, right? Moses couldn't just walk in and go, this is amazing, God, and there's this bright light. Thank you, you know. He had this distance, and that distance has been set up, right, in this passage. But on the other hand, and we'll talk more about that distance as we go, I want to show, though, yet nonetheless, God is there, and they could see you. You know, it says they could see the fire in this tabernacle at night. Can you imagine thinking there's a fire in that tent, and it's not being consumed, it's not just burning to the ground, it's God's presence, and him wanting to be with them? Um, God wants to be with us, right? God really wants to be with you. Now that sound, I, Sometimes I feel like I just went into the 1980s and became cheesy. There's a poster, God wants to be with you as a kitten. But it's true. I'm gonna, here's an illustration of, of how we're, we're made in God's image. And we really want to be with each other. And there, I was seeing, I don't know if some of you saw this, I forget what social media, you always come across great articles or weird ones. There's a photographer taking a picture of strangers. Anyone see this? And these two strangers are together. The first one I saw was like a police officer with his arms around what it looked like it'd be his little girl. She's probably 13. And they look like they've known each other their whole lives. And then the caption is, they just met. And so this photographer in New York grabs two strangers that don't really fit together, or three, and then he gives them instructions and he poses them. And then he takes their photograph. And, and they look like they've known each other forever. Right? Brent, this would be a great project for you, like right in the streets of Stillwater or Perkins. Unfortunately, everyone will look just the same. But anyway, and they will actually know each other. Oh, I know him. I hate that guy. It's my banker. So what was fascinating, though, there's a lot of things about this story that are fascinating. You, they, there was a video showing the process. And at first, the two strangers or three strangers would look awkward, as you would imagine. OK, we're going to hold hands. I'm going to put my head on the shoulder. But by the end of the shoot, it was like if you, they, they had planned to come to the shoot. They knew they were coming to this moment. They would actually say, we felt connected. That somehow acting like we knew each other, and actually touching and holding and kind of coddling. And again, there was nothing sexual or weird. They act, because often it was like women, like there was one older woman and two young. They all, they said, we felt connected. And I thought that that's because we're made in the image of God. And we are made to be connected. People should be connected. And it's, it's in moments like that where this artist is able to show us, like poets and artists are able to do, the way it really is supposed to be. We're not supposed to be walking by each other, ignoring each other like they do in New York, like we do here, like we do in our own families. We're actually supposed to be close to each other, moving toward one another. And it was because these moments are created where they knew for a little bit, this is what I'm doing. I'm not going to go to my job right now. I'm not going to go do this other, I'm going to be right here doing these things. And they were surprised by it. That comes from God. God, in the form of the Trinity, right, God, the Trinitarian God has the most beautiful relationship you could possibly imagine. We can't even comprehend it. And he's extended that to mankind by making us in his image. And we have that passion and that desire, but it's been squelched by our sin. And so when we read a passage like this where God is saying, I want to dwell with you, we're like those awkward people, kind of like, this is awkward. I'm not really sure what to do with this. It, it just feels so strange. But it's not because God is strange. It's because you and I are strange. It's because of our sin. You have to step back to the whole story. In the garden, God dwelled with them, with Adam and Eve. And then they sinned. And they had to hide themselves from God. 
And that was the, the effect of the sin that we inherited. So what we do is we avoid God at all costs. But God said, I'm going to redeem you. And the whole book of Exodus is so fascinating. It's God doing that redemption. So as archaic as it looks, and I know it does, as weird as a lot of these steps and, and processes feel to you, you have to grasp, this is like a movie. It's a story, but it's your story. And God is showing he rescued this people. Remember he, he, the birth of Moses way at the beginning of Exodus? Is, is itself a miracle that Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh, that, God, that he is the one who had been raised this way and was made to be this mediator from the beginning, and God comes to him at the burning bush and says, I'm going to use you to go back and get your people who are in captivity. The whole story builds. Remember the, 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 the plagues where God is showing kind of a picture of the fall and these plagues and nature, un, what it looks like just unruled? And yet we come to the final plague, death of the firstborn, but blood is covering the ones that are saved, right? And so God is preparing, he's sort of showing, he's not sort of, he's showing redemption through the blood, and Israel is saved, and they're sent out into the wilderness, but God is with them, but yet not tabernacling with them yet. And at the end of Exodus, we finally see, after Sinai, after the Ten Commandments, we have God saying, even though you built that golden calf, even though you tried to rebel, I'm still coming to you. I'm still going to dwell with you. And that's God's passion. And that's God's desire. Third thing before we get into more practical things. He doesn't, he doesn't just come, they don't just have this tent and he dwells and the story's over. That's the thing that we have to grasp to have this make any sense in our lives. If you read through Numbers 9, the end of Numbers 9, it tells this story a little bit more detailed. But they would have this tabernacle. And they're long, do you know where they're going? They're, they're longing to get to the promised land. Right? They're waiting to get to Canaan, to the promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. Is that your longing? I think, I know, all of us, when our Christianity is jammed, what do I mean? When you kind of look at your spiritual life and you kind of go, I'm not really, I'm just sort of stuck, right? Or I'm struggling in a particular sin or several. Or I just don't care anymore. Or whatever, whatever that is. It's always going to contain some element of you not caring anymore about heaven. Somehow heaven's become this mascot. Like, well, when I die, I'll go to heaven. But I'm living for earth. Right? I'm living for now. I want what's mine. I want it now. The second things go wrong, of course, we begin to shift that longing, don't we? The second life starts to fall apart, we start longing for heaven more. But you, this, you, you know the quote from C.S. Lewis, right? If you aim for earth, or if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. But you aim at earth and you get neither. And what you see here is they're not just going to dwell in this desert with this tent in God's presence. He pulls it back and they move again. And then he resettles at night. And every day, and by the way, that entire process is repeated every single day. All these processes of, of erecting the, the tabernacle, the holiest of holies, the ark, and putting the poles, every day the cleansing, it's, it's erected. And then every day it's taken down when the cloud moves, and they move again for 40 years. Now sometimes it was a string of days, right? It says that in Numbers 9. But are you longing for Canaan? These are the steps I just want, I'm just trying to get you to think about that for a minute. Are you even longing for that? Or have you become so 
focus on the present life, but that's sort of a dream, some sort of a distant unreality to you and has no bearing. If that's the case, God is dwelling with you. Our Christian, Christian life becomes very, very boring. So what do we do with that? I want to turn our attention to um, Hebrew or the book of John and just show that God longs to dwell with us and he did so. I should have had it saved. Sorry. John 1. Jesus comes, right? Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus comes. So, in John 1, we see this. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John is saying there when he says the Word became flesh and dwelt, that that Greek word dwelt means the tabernacle. And what John is saying is, guys, all of this story we just talked about, all of that tent, all of that is temporary. But what it's pointing to is Jesus. And so here is Jesus coming to earth to dwell with man. But he's dwelling with us in a temporary way, isn't he? Just like that tabernacle, I don't know if you know the story, but that thing that we just saw erected, as glorious as it was, was only a foreshadow of what Solomon would build. He came and built a glorious temple. And Jesus, by the way, got crucified. One of the primary reasons he was arrested and crucified was he kept saying, I'm going to tear that temple down and rebuild it in three days. And then they would lie and try to tell, you know, they misunderstood what he meant. But Jesus is saying, I'm this temple. This is me. I have come to dwell with you. And the question is, is that your hope? Is that what you see Jesus as? Is that the connection we make when we read the Old Testament? Are we looking at it through the lens of Christ? In Hebrews, Doug has been asking me, he said, teach through Hebrews all, all the fall. It will make this huge connection. And it does, but I'm not going to. Um, for various reasons. So, but, but he's, it's a good suggestion. That's not, he's got other suggestions, and I listen to them. Uh, don't, don't, that sounded really rude. I'm sorry, Doug. In Hebrews 8, so the, the writer of Hebrews is connecting the dots. Jo- John has told us Jesus is the temple. He's the tabernacle, right? In the Old Testament, we know that they're longing for a, a redeemer, for a savior. And Hebrews is connecting the dots. He talks about how Jesus was the better Moses, right? Moses, in the end, had to get out of the temple, right? Moses, in the end, couldn't enter the promised land because he sinned, right? But Jesus didn't sin. He was the better. He compares him to Melchizedek. But then in, in chapter 8, listen to what, what the writer tells us of Hebrews. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. <clears throat> we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if, here, if he were on earth, he would not be the priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow. For when Moses brought about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old way, than the old covenant that he mediates is better. Sorry, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on the better promises. 
And in chapter 9, he goes on. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship in earthly places of holiness. And he goes on to explain all the pieces of the, of the tabernacle. And he's making the case, this writer, that, that Jesus is the tabernacle. Okay? That is strange, isn't it? Because Jesus is a person. So what does that mean that he's the, he, is this, he is the holy tabernacle? He is this, this thing. He is the structure. What it means is that if we are united to Christ, then we are part of that structure. And listen to what he says in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as the footnote would tell you, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay. Here's this tabernacle in the desert, right? Only the priests can go into the holiest places. There's the holy place, and then there's the holiest of holy. And they couldn't just go in whenever they wanted. And, and when they went in, and this carried over to Solomon's temple, it was a very fearful thing because God was present somehow with that. There's this Ark of the Covenant in there. It has the tablets. It's crazy. And, and they just they knew God was in there. And there are these barriers. So everybody could come up to the outer edge, and then there's this court. People can go into the court. But not everybody could go into the tabernacle. And even less can go into the holy place because it's only the priest. And only the one priest for the, for the ceremony could go into the holiest of holies. And it was just constantly barrier after barrier after barrier. And even then, when the priest would go in, uh, depending on you know, where you are in, in history, what kind of garments they wore, there was fear that they would die. There were some garments that had bells on them to hear if maybe they had dropped dead and the bells quit ringing. And I've... There was even rope that they might have to pull them out by because they could have died in the presence of God. It was scary. And do you hear what we just heard? In Christ, you are not just, you don't have to wear your bells. You get to walk into that room and dwell with Him. You have access to the holiest of holies. You are in the temple in Christ. Is that what you believe? How does that happen? Because His Holy Spirit was sent and dwells with you. When Jesus died and rose again and goes to heaven, He sends the Helper to dwell in your heart. Right? And unite us to Him. That is the promise. That is what we have in, in Jesus. Is that, your, is that your reality? Is that your view of the temple? Is that your view of your Christian life? Now, I'm going to close it now and bring it more practical because I've been all on this theological I don't normally do this long on just theology. Everyone's kind of, I'm stretching. You're, you're all kind of starting to get the sleepiness thing. Um, and I apologize. No, I'm gonna, let's bring it home with more theology. I like Sylvia's look on her face. Like, I have no problem. This is awesome. Keep it going. Okay, here, here's the practicality. Everything I just said, if you're a believer, you already believe. So what's the big deal? Right? If you're a Christian, none of that is necessarily new. A, it's true of you if you're a believer. That's wonderful. But you might be a Christian and, and, and not know those things. That the Spirit dwells in you. That you are united to Christ. That you are in the holiest of holies. That where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, 
you are present with him. Here's the dilemma. We don't live like that, do we? And I want to just draw our attention to a book I might actually preach from this fall, 1 Corinthians, because I think we have a lot in common with them. Maybe not as much as I think, but some. But 1 Corinthians opens up with divisions in the church. I don't think we have divisions in this church necessarily, but we all are divided. Every one of us is divided in that. We have this, if we're a believer, we have, our, we have our new self, but we have our old self. And guess who wins a lot? The flesh. And so we have divisions. And even uh, in, the, in the church universal, we have divisions like they have. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, Some say I follow Paul, others say I follow Apollos, others say I follow Cephas. By the way, those are great people to follow. I'm surprised Paul didn't go to the first group. You had it correct. You should follow me. He didn't say that. Um, But what he is saying is this. You're divided. You're living like people who are not filled with the Spirit. And he goes all the way into chapter 3, and he says something that's so amazing and so crazy. He said, look, I laid this foundation. Somebody else came and built on it. That's a good thing. right? Somebody like a a pastor or maybe other pastors, other apostles, not that they're the same, have built on this foundation. And he says, some, and, the, and he starts describing the material, right? He says this uh, Each one's work will be, or, you know, it says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, or hay, or straw, it's a temple he's talking about, right? And then he said, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. In other words, there will become a judgment, and there will come a point where. These things that are building this church either are real or they're not real. This is where it gets a little bit frightening. What Paul is essentially saying is, you and I are the temple. In fact, he says that exactly. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? But the risk is that we can pretend to be a part of the temple and not actually be part of the temple. So the temple of God of, of, of God is the church, the body of Christ. And the Spirit dwells in each one of us particularly and, and uniquely, and we're united to Christ, but we're also a body together. And Paul is saying, do you not know that you are the temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, he's destroying God. He, or God will destroy him. Excuse me, he can't destroy God. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He's trying to get them to understand, quit living like you're just on your own, doing your own thing. Understand you're part of this vast structure. Okay. The best part of that chapter, though, in my opinion, there's a lot. Everyone's going to have their own. Is when he says this at the very end. He says, so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Now, this is what I want to bring it to you. This is a very simple final thought, but I want you to hear this. The reason you and I find division appealing, the reason you and I find other things appealing, and we start putting our hope in man, whether it's us, or a leader, or a new hobby, or a sports team, the reason we allow ourselves to do that is because we are still seeking significance, right? And when Paul says, all things are yours, just imagine for a moment, what would happen if you, were, you had a boss and you're really trying to impress the boss, okay? 
and you just found out you inherited the company. I mean, let's assume it's a good boss. Hey, you're doing a good job, Bob, but I'm no longer going to be kissing up to my boss. I own the company, right? And God is, what Paul is telling you is, if you are in Christ, all things are yours. Why are you living like you're trying to sort of still earn your way, which leads to divisions, which leads to other things that draw your attention, which leads to other loves? And so the temple, you and I are the temple, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but that only works when we believe it and live in the reality that we are owners of all things in Christ. Is that your view? Is that what you dwell on? Is that your hope? Ah, I'm growling because I don't know how to make it practical. How do you go from temple to, someone come finish this for me. Thomas, how do you make it practical? Well, we're here worshiping, right? Like I said last week, in a room with jump rope signs and even the new building is hopeful and as amazing as that could be, it's a building. It's going to have some silly things. It's a building. It's not the temple. In fact, we'll never really know what the temple looks like until we get to heaven, right? I really want to know, is that your longing? If I could have one th- prayer for you this morning, you, you can leave here going, that was the worst sermon Uh, the worship service was average, then you go to lunch, and it's average. That's all fine. But you go home, and maybe for five minutes you sit there and you pray, Lord, I pray that my heart would long for you and for eternity. Forgive me, Lord, for only thinking about now. Does Does that make sense? And then not that you're here, now listen to what I'm, don't listen to what I'm not, I'm not saying Now is insignificant. That's not what I'm saying. Now matters. But it only matters if it's aiming toward heaven and toward final worship, full worship in the kingdom of God in heaven. Then he begins to fill your spirit, your life with his spirit, and now can matter even better. Now the church can begin to behave like the church. Now we can hate injustice. right? Now we can hate our own sin and begin to pray that the Spirit would remove our own sin, but it only happens when we're looking at Him and longing for glory and longing for Canaan. Is that your hope? That's my prayer for you today. Five minutes. Go pray that prayer and then pray that the Spirit would show you the connection of heaven to your daily lives. That your ordinary, boring, mundane daily lives would become glorious and extraordinary in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this temple that we see in Exodus 40, if we were there, man, I can't even imagine what we would think to see that cloud descend and to see the the intensity that even Moses couldn't go in. And yet, Spirit, you dwell our own hearts that way and more so. That was a representation of you, a theophany. You're really in us. We don't understand that, but we believe it. And we long to know you more and more. And Father, we pray that Grace Church would join with the church universal to bring you glory and honor and worship and serve to, to, to minister to this land that you called us to. But only by your grace and mercy. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.